Hey, this is Rob, and that's Micaiah, and you are listening to You Forgot One. Today on You Forgot One, choosing the best Velvet Underground album. Micaiah, you say Velvet Underground and Nico, I say Loaded, their first album and their last. What do our listeners need to know right up front about the Velvet Underground? Hopefully I'm not um, saying anything that's new information for anyone, but Velvet Underground are pretty much kind of considered one, one of the most influential bands of all time, certainly one of the most influential American rock bands of all time, considered to be kind of proto-punk. Uh, we know that they also inspired the glam movement, particularly Bowie. Um you know, but also just really a really great rock and roll band that was also interested in avant-garde music and like the beatnik poets and kind of early rock and roll and just in the mid to late 60s, just kind of really creating and fostering a new sound that would kind of, you know, lay the groundwork for so much alternative music, whether that's noise rock bands or indie rock bands or folk rock bands uh, that are you know, uh, using different kind of sound textures to to fill in that sound to keep it from being just kind of generic folk music, you know? Um, so, yeah, I mean, this is, you know, they're, they're one of the greats, right? I mean, this is kind of a long time coming. This is kind of one of those ones where people are saying, oh, you're just now getting to Velvet Underground, kind of season one kind of act. Um, but I think that's because um, it's, it's taking this long. And I've said, I've made this excuse for a few hours of the season, they only have four albums, but they're four great albums. Mm-hmm. And deciding which one needs to go on the list, I don't think is as obvious as people say it is. Now, I know I picked Velvet Underground Nico, which is kind of famously kind of the most highly regarded album, but I've almost nominated White Light, White Heat for our list. I've almost nominated the self-titled, you know, and, and there's a good case for all four. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm glad we're talking about these two albums, the first and the last, because I, I don't think it's, I don't think the answer is as obvious as people think that it is. I, I want to join you in saying that I, I think it's not as obvious. All four of the Velvet Underground albums with the, with any of the original members, there is a fifth Velvet Underground album released under the name Velvet Underground called Squeeze that is really made by by the bassist Doug Yule, who essentially comes in to replace John Cale after the first two albums, uh, is the only member who plays uh, on the fifth album, Squeeze. So traditionally, we don't consider that part of the Velvet Underground canon. Um, but the four albums that we talk about when we're talking about Velvet Underground, all four have been ranked in every iteration of the Rolling Stone 500. In the 2003 iteration, um, all of them were in the top 400. Now all of them are in the top 300. Um, I mean, this, this, is a, this is a band that has a very short-lived uh, career as, as a band. Essentially, they are formed in 1965 playing in Andy Warhol's factory and essentially playing as the house band for Andy Warhol's factory. They record their first album in 1966. It's released in 1967. 
Um, Velvet Underground and Eco is released in 1967. White Light, White Heat is released in 1968. Velvet Underground self-titled in 1969. And they have already essentially broken up as a band. All the original members have left months before their final album, Loaded, is released in 1970. And yet... All four of these albums are tremendous, um, are really great albums. Um, I think there's something really special about Loaded. Uh, obviously, everyone in their mother ranks Velvet Underground and Nico as one of the top 25, top 50 best albums of all time. Um, so if, if we're looking around at every other list, uh, it's pretty obvious which way this will go. But one of the things I'm loving about this podcast, Micaiah, is we have taken the opportunity on many an artist to kind of plan our flag and say, actually, it's this album that has long been forgotten about. So we need some help making this decision. And luckily, we've got some. Micaiah, tell us a little bit about our guest today. Our guest is, is uh, Bradley Morgan, um, who is a writer uh and he uh published u2's the joshua tree planting roots in mythic america he is also the the uh, music book interviewer for new books network uh so new books network um he interviews uh, authors who write books about music and musicians um, and so many of the friends of the pod, many of our guests who have been on the podcast have been interviewed on his podcast. Perfect guest for, for our podcast and for what we're doing here. Um, so let's get into it. I love it. Let's take a quick break. We're going to let you hear from our sponsors, Mirror Coffee Roasters and Spotify for Podcasters. And we'll be back with our guest, Bradley Morgan. I want to take a second and tell you a little bit about Mirror Coffee Roasters. Mirror Coffee Roasters are pursuing excellence from coffee, farm to cup. The goal at Mirror Coffee Roasters has always been to use coffee as a tool for change. Whether that's a bag of coffee on your kitchen counter or creating a sustainable, human-focused sourcing practice that goes far beyond generic marketing labels. No matter how you enjoy your coffee, Mirror Coffee Roasters is here to help you on your journey and elevate your coffee experience. I want to encourage you to go to their website, mirrorcoffeeroasters.com today, and check out their coffee box a four-bag sampler box of some of their best coffees from Colombia, Guatemala, and Ethiopia. Check out Mirror Coffee Roasters today. Just a restless feeling by my side. Early dawning, Sunday morning, 
It's just the wasted years so close behind Watch out, the world's behind you There's always someone around you who will call It's nothing at all His name is Bradley Spencer Morgan. He is the author of U2's Joshua Tree, Planting Roots in Mythic America. Brad, it's so good to have you with us. Can I call you Brad or Bradley? What do you go by? Oh, either one's fine. Thank you. And thank you for having me on the show, uh, Robin Micaiah. Well, hey, let's start here. What got you into the Velvet Underground? What was your exposure to the Velvet Underground? How did you first get into them? And what has their music meant to you over the years? I can't remember for certain how I found out about the Velvet Underground, but I think for a lot of millennials, I think iconography plays a huge role in that. I I spent a lot of my childhood in areas where I didn't necessarily have access to um, a lot of different types of music. A lot of times I spent uh, time growing up in very rural parts of the country and Walmart is essentially your, uh, your musical outlet, which can present a lot of challenges. And so when I got to of an age when I was older and started paying more attention to music and um, high school and college, I had to go back and just get an education on all of this. And so this resulted in looking at uh, the Rolling Stone list that came out in 2003 and just seeing this kind of imagery just pop over and over again, Velvet Underground and Nico with the Andy Warhol banana peel is very famous just on its own. And so it just kind of seeped into that, you know, consciousness in a way that feels very, I think for people of younger generations compared to who this was a contemporary album to, there's just type of, elements of pop culture culture that just seem to seep through and come out you, like you've already known it in some way, if that makes any kind of sense on an existential level. Yeah. There's, there's a, there's a built-in familiarity almost um, not, not just to the music, but kind of like you said, the, this kind of like iconography almost before I ever heard a single song from Velvet Underground and Nico that that album cover was ubiquitous. I mean, it was just that that image was something you saw everywhere, even if you were completely unfamiliar with the music. And so for, for me, it was that very similar thing. Feeling like the Velvet Underground was was just kind of always there, but it wasn't until probably around the same time, that 2003 to 2006 range, where I started listening to Velvet Underground for the first time. And it was for the same reasons. It was that, that first 2003 Rolling Stone 500 list where suddenly you're seeing Velvet Underground and Nico, they have as the 13th best album of all time. And you're going, man, I've never even heard this. And then you start going through it. And then it's next thing you know, it's the whole discography. Mikhail, what about for you as, as the youngster of, of, of the three of us, how did you get turned on to the Velvet Underground? Sure. Um, I mean, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where like you see the cover all the time. You see it so often that you think you know what it is, you know, like it's something like even if you have never seen Star Wars, you can kind of in conversation act like you've seen Star Wars, you know, like, oh, yeah, Luke, Darth Vader. I get it. I know what it is. Yeah. You know, like that's kind of how it was like with Velvet Underground, but it wasn't until late high school uh, through 
movies. So, I mean, I guess like technically the first time I like really heard of them is in like Almost Famous where like Philip Seymour Hoffman asked Lester Bangs is like, give me white light, white heat. And they're talking about like Lou Reed. I'm like, I guess this is an important person. You know, and then a couple of years after that, it's the Rolling Stone 2003 list. And I was 12 or 13 when the list came out and I had it. And I was just kind of like, okay, I, I, I see this image. I know this image. I feel like I understand something about this image and the popular culture of that time. Uh, just because, you know, I also knew like the Marilyn Monroe and the Campbell soup can. So I'm just like, I feel like I have some sort of idea of what this is. Uh, but then I, um, the movie Adventureland, which I've talked about somehow many times on this podcast, I feel like uh, that came out and you hear things like here she comes now and pale blue eyes. I'm like, wait, that's Velvet Underground? Like, that sounds awesome. And that doesn't sound like like the Beatles or like Hendrix or like anything that I was thinking of of what came out in like the mid to late 60s. So is like, you know, like, oh, there's actually something like way cooler or like more interesting, like actually like way more in line with like the indie rock music that I'd been listening to, you know, like with this band, like that is they, they seem to kind of be like the origin of like American indie rock. Whereas the Beatles are kind of like the template for like all of like pop and rock music since the 1963, uh, the velvet underground. I kind of quickly realized like, Oh, they're kind of like the alternative Beatles was like, Oh, you can kind of pinpoint this band as being like, the origin of a different kind of rock music. The Kinks, I think, also fall into that category. But um, yeah, so that that was kind of my. But I didn't really like really get in like like y'all like in my twenties is when I like really like doubled down. Um, you know, and then that, a lot of that was just you know stream. You know, when when streaming became a thing and you could listen to whatever you wanted because you weren't bound to Walmart and Target like like Bradley was saying. You know, then then it became a thing where I could just go through their entire discography, you know, and that's not just like, okay, well, these are, I guess these are like one of my bands now. I think what's very fascinating is that all three of us touch upon that we had some, we thought we had some sort of semblance of an idea of what this sounded like. And it brings to mind just to get a plug in for my books as we're not talking Joshua tree. Um, the, the forward was written by a writer named Gregor Meyer, who is a film writer who I really highly respect. And I sought him out because when I asked him to write the forward to my book, he'd actually never even listened to the album before. And what was remarkable was he was in college when that album came out and through, through various other music interests that he had at that time. And also the heavy airplay of what he refers to as the album's Holy Trinity of singles, where the streets have no name. Some have found what I'm looking for with or without you. He thought he had a idea of what this kind of album sound like. And um, when I approached him, I, I had to make a very strong case that I wanted him to do this. And I explained to him why, um, because it was something to connect with what I was trying to convey in my book. He writes in that opening essay about this relevatory experience he had with this album years later um, when he had every opportunity to listen to it at that time. And he specifically uses the phrase Frankenstein to describe um, how you might see various different pieces or scenes of films, whether it's be flipping through the TV channels or on at a bar, and you think you've seen it, but when you actually do see it, 
you get the whole context to it. And I, and I think that's a very interesting to point out about all of our experiences being rather similar with this regard, especially for something that's so heavily driven by the album cover itself. Yeah. And I love that you bring that up because the thing that I'm thinking about is we're, we're all talking about, it, especially for, you know, what probably Mackay and I have in common here as well is that most of my familiarity to any Velvet Underground music, um, especially early on in my life, was where it showed up in in cinema or television, you know, it, where, where it was showing up other places. And so in many ways, I, I think the thing that kind of ends up happening is that you unintentionally end up attaching whatever the emotion of the scene of that movie or that television show, wherever you first heard that, especially in those settings where it's being used to create a feeling or an emotion uh, within a movie, you end up kind of attaching it. And so again, I think because so often Velvet Underground music gets used in those very past looking, you know, glory day kind of movies um, whether it's something like almost famous or anything else kind of from the late sixties, early seventies. Uh, and then it ends up becoming all of this kind of nostalgia. And then, like you're saying, then when you take in any of these albums in their entirety on their own, it's such a dramatically different experience. And I think for me, I was really surprised at how dark so much of, especially the first three albums, how dark so much of the content is of the Velvet Underground albums, because I didn't hear that in the context of seeing it in these, you know, very nostalgia laden movies. Yeah. I'm with you. I mean, uh, I mean, not to jump too far ahead, but like when I first heard Sunday morning, I was like, is that what this band is? Which, and there are reasons why that, that song sounds that way. Um, but I might be jumping ahead a little bit too much. Yeah, well, let's let's talk a little bit about Velvet Underground first. This is a band that essentially forms in 1965. The original members, Sterling Morrison, Maureen Tucker, John Cale, and Lou Reed, essentially begin playing um, and then sometimes performing with the German artist Nico with this Andy Warhol kind of strange tour performance 
um, that was happening and they become the house band there. They ultimately do a demo in 1966, release their first album in 1967. John Cale leaves the band by the end of 1968 and the band essentially ceases to exist by the end of 1969. And almost a year after Lou Reed has left the band, their fourth album loaded comes out and for a band that exists for such a short period of time and really only releases four albums with the original, with, with any kind of semblance of the original lineup, considering that none of those four albums sold really well, none of those four albums ever charted well, um, ever sold well uh, during the period of time that they existed as a band. And it became of course a, a big issue of contention with their label and ultimately they cease to exist. And yet, despite that, this blip of a band that releases these four albums is thought of as one of the most influential bands of all time. What do you both credit that to? Where, where do you think that that idea of this incredible influence for a, for the most part, a really kind of unknown band of the time uh, certainly not a popular band or a band that is that is selling millions of records. How do they have the influence today where, you know, Rolling Stone can call them one of the 20 greatest acts of all time? I think we have to consider where they fit in at the time. And we can take a look at other artistic mediums to kind of get a sense of how the overall culture was changing. If we think about Hollywood at that time, Hollywood was going from a system that was transitioning from large, big budget studio system films to smaller um, avant-garde, very particular in their tone and grittiness as a kind of countercultural pivot away from what was happening elsewhere at that time, there seemed to be a larger kind of focus on that. Um, not a focus, but the, a larger reverberation that was happening that was a, perhaps a byproduct of a lot of different social and economic factors, uh, certainly uh, the war in Vietnam, that there was this need to, not, um, a, a kind of hunger for this type of sound, this type of gritty reflection. And we, when we think about this from a musical perspective, Think about all the other big albums that came out in 1967 at that time. You had Sgt. Pepper, which was a monumental album, a very good album, a great album, um, and a very influential album as well. But if you break it down, a lot of its themes and its musical ideas are really just rooted in kind of this nostalgia that of a previous time when the English Empire was still, you know, so vast that the sun can never set on it. So I think we have to consider what was happening in the larger culture at that time. Elsewhere, besides the Beatles, you have the hippie movement, um, which um, I'm not particularly fond of, but to explain why they were so influential, this starts being the breeding ground for that kind of aesthetic that then leads into other uh, musical movements such as proto-punk. I mean, you have uh, the Stooges two years later, who are essentially the godfathers of, the, of, of punk, um, arguably. And I, th I think with Velvet Underground you're, that you're seeing the earliest intonations of that. Yeah, I mean, I, I really like bringing the idea of cinema into this because, I mean, even on their early tours, there is a blend of music and cinema because they have the projections behind them of Andy Warhol's films and the music being played at the same time. 
So these are people who, you know, so it's, and I always thought of, you know, when I started to learn more about the Velvet Underground, I, it was hard to think of them as a band. Like, and I kind of thought of them just like as an art project more than a band. Um, Cause they, and, and they would play in like museums and like art shows, not like, you know, music venues. I mean, they, they did that too, but they also played in, in other kind of spaces and especially, you know, John Cale, who was particularly interested in like in, in avant-garde music and not just rock music or pop music or even, you know, or, you know, R&B music. Yeah, there, there is this, especially in New York, this is the same time, you know, in the mid to late 60s, this is where like Brian De Palma is making his first films and they look more like Jean-Luc Godard than they do Hitchcock, like his later films will. Um, and Scorsese is making his first films, like Who's That Knocking at My Door in 1967 and 1968 when it gets re-released, uh, thanks to Roger Corman. And so there is just some sort of broader arts movement happening where it is kind of, you know, there's this push for avant-garde, but also a social realism. And I think that kind of gets combined with the Velvet Underground in terms of the music can be at times experimental in tilt toward the avant-garde but the subject matter itself is a is a realism that has existed forever uh bdsm and you know sadomasochism and, and drug abuse hard drugs that, that's not new but it was new to pop culture you know so and the the ramones basically did the same thing in 76 by taking you know writing a bubblegum bubble pop songs with heavy distortion and bar chords, but singing about like domestic abuse and sniffing glue and, you know, all that kind of, you know, so it's, it's the same kind of thing, but that that's all that's to say, that's why they get to be considered like a proto punk band, you know, for the Beatles, of course, are, are so influential because they just are the most famous band to ever exist. But for the Velvets, they seem to represent something outside of that. That is not just like, Oh, this, this is—it's not just like, oh wow, look how popular you can be with you know this type of song. It's like, well, you know, this is really interesting and very expressive, and it's a—it's a different, it's a new way and a different kind of way of expressing yourself that still has roots in, you know, older musical styles. I mean, so much of what Lou Reed does is still rooted in the folk movement. A lot of his melodies. Um, resemble some of the early Dylan stuff. Tom Wilson, the producer of the record, produced uh, the Dylan stuff and Simon and Garfunkel. You know, but uh, you mix it with his guitar playing and all of a sudden it becomes a new thing. You know, um, the ostrich-style guitar tuning. Um, what John Kells brings to the table. Uh, Mo Tucker's drum set. You know, um, standing instead of sitting while playing and using mallets on the kick drum. Right. It's just, it's a, it's a, it's an old style. You know, so much of it is rooted in like, uh, like doo-wop music, clearly like throughout their discography. That's some, that's something Lou Reed is very interested in, in, even into his solo career, but it just has the slant on it. The slant that comes from the beatniks, you know, it comes from Ginsburg and William S. Burroughs and, you know, translating that into rock and roll while these other broader, you know, arts movements are happening, just makes it something just much more exciting than what the Beach Boys are doing in 67 
it sits outside of what was so popular at that time. It's not like psychedelic. You know, there, there are psychedelic elements, especially in terms of the presentation, like when you look at the back cover, but it's not psychedelic like the way Hendrix was or, you know, uh, some of the other acts uh, like Sgt. Pepper or something, you know, it's so like it, it was not what was popular in rock and roll. You know, so that's one reason I don't think it caught on so immediately. But I think that's what gives it, you know, some of its longevity. Can I have your autograph? He said to the fat blonde actress. You know, I've seen every movie you've been in. From pairs of pain to jewels of glory. And when you kissed Robert Mitchum, gee, but I thought you'd never catch him over the There is a quote, and I'll be honest, I don't know who, who is who is famous for saying it, but it's the quote that you often hear attributed to uh, the Velvet Underground, which is that not many people listen to the Velvet Underground, but everyone who did started a band. Be Brian Eno. Brian, Brian Eno. Brian Eno. Not everyone listened to, to the Velvet Underground, but everyone who did started a band. Is that part of it? Is is it just one of those things that the people who did like the Velvet Underground are people who ended up becoming the next generation of great musicians? Is is that where that influence is is heard so clearly? I think it's an interesting quote. I think it's great for um, a type of. I mean, you know, he's a he's a really smart guy, but I think that tends to get added to a bit of the lore. I'd say more bands more formed after hearing Sgt. Pepper than. Then Velvet Underground and Nico. Now, what that ratio is is obviously going to be a lot higher for VU and Nico, but um, it's 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 an interesting idea. I don't know exactly where I would say that influence comes from. Um, I, I'm not knowledgeable enough to say where that does. If I'm listening to Velvet Underground and I'm listening to Sgt. Pepper, I have an idea of how to replicate some of what I'm hearing on Velvet Underground. Um, even if that's like, you know, Waiting for the Man, you know, that kind of like, just like kind of rock and straightforward kind of rock and roll sound or just making noise like the end of the album. I have an idea of how to do that. Mm-hmm. I have no idea how to do Benefit for Mr. Kite. I have no idea how to do A Day in the Life. I, I wouldn't know where to begin to, you know, to, I mean, in, uh, within you, without you, the George Harrison song on, on Sergeant Pepper, right? I, I have no idea how to do that. If I get my buddies together, we could probably do something that sounds 
something close to the Velvet Underground. And I think what's so liberating about the Velvet Underground is that you could, you know, write about anything, um, even the stuff that you were maybe not supposed to be singing about before, like explicitly singing about drugs and express, uh, explicitly singing about sex. And you know, so I think that opened up a new avenue um, in, in the same way that, you know, hip hop would do later, especially in the late 80s. Um, so I think that's another part of it. Um, but of course, in the, the immediate aftermath of 1967, right, more huge bands wanted to do the Sgt. Pepper sound. You know, this, that, that is what you were hearing. Unless in 1967, you also listened to John Wesley Harding by Bob Dylan and you wanted to do the country rock thing like, the birds and Neil Young and, you know, and others, you know, so, but the velvets, I think also, I think they're so associated with New York. So I think that uh, who they're, you know, who they're inspiring are going to be, it's 1967. You get those kids are teenagers by 73. You have like Jonathan Richmond and the modern lovers you know, and they record Roadrunner and that becomes kind of like a staple also for the proto-punk kind of scene. And then 74, 75, you have Patti Smith, 76, the first Ramones album. But like the CBGB scene is, is uh, not far behind. Mm-hmm. And I think especially in American music, uh, we, we certainly cherish all that came out of CBGB television the Ramones, Talking Heads, Blondie. And so, and again, that, that's where I'm saying, you know, they're kind of the, the Beatles of alternative music, at least in America, you know, so I feel like that influence is really felt there also. And, and you can, and, uh, but there's also Lou Reed's solo stuff. That's kind of the thing that we haven't actually really been talking about his solo. He's much more successful by the time Transformer comes out as a solo artist. Mm-hmm. Um, and his associate, you know, Bowie produces that records the same year Ziggy Stardust comes out. Um, even though Bowie's created his whole personality, we've already talked about Bowie this season, you know, around Lou Reed and Mark Bolin kind of as a combination. But, you know, I think the the influence is, uh, you know, I, I just think it's liberating mm-hmm. uh, the, the kind of music they're making that like any, any, anything goes but not like in the Beatles way of like, oh, you can be like John and just look at a an old poster of a circus and then make that a song. Because that doesn't seem very meaningful to people in the late 60s where, you know, especially young college students where things have to have meaning. What are you trying to say, man? Like what's what's important yeah. to you? You know, like like the cinema that's coming out at that time as well, I'm saying. So if, if I can, it, it sounds 
I, I, what, I, what I'm hearing from you, Micaiah, and, 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 and Bradley, I want, I want to get kind of your take on this. Whereas Sergeant Peppers is really kind of accessible to the listener, you know, it's it, everything is, it, you know, for the most part, with the exception of two songs on the album, everything is written in a major key. It all follows, you know, very kind of traditional, um, you know, nostalgic musical tropes, you know, like even though it is doing things that are new and creative, it's all creative within the context of these kind of very familiar rules. So it's accessible to the listener. But what I'm hearing from you is that what makes Velvet Underground great and what makes them influential is because they're accessible for musicians and for performers so that for them, it's it's not just about here's a band that I can listen to, but because of the rawness and the sloppiness of what you're hearing in a Velvet Underground album, there is an accessibility for people who may not have the musical skill or talent of a George Martin or of uh, a John Lennon or a Paul McCartney or George Harrison. Like it's someone who may, may be able to just go, I can play five chords on the guitar so I can play this Lou Reed song. I can play this Velvet Underground song. And so that it does pave the way for that, um, I don't want to say less um, musically skillful uh, style of music, but but definitely a rawness to music, um, a lack of maybe less polish than was being heard at the time. Well, I think it's uh, for people not who don't have the talent necessarily, but for people who don't have Abbey Road. Yeah. The, the, the big studio. Yeah, so there, there, there's, a, there's a class element to it as well. There's a, like the financial element. Aspect. Yeah, you know, it's like, oh, wait, you can, you can release a record where like clearly like the bass is a little bit too loud and it's peaking here and it's peaking there and it, it, it doesn't sound perfect. You know, in the, in the 60s, there was such competition between Phil Spector and Brian Wilson and the Beatles to just have the most perfect sounding pop records. And the Velvet Underground had quite seemingly the opposite intention. You know, it wasn't trying to make the most perfect popular sound, uh, but to make, you know, something but which for them was much more interesting and for um, some people much more appealing. And, you know, uh, Venus and Furs is not when I'm 64. And for some people, <laughs> Venus and Furs is just much more interesting yeah. than like a Tin Pen Alley or whatever British musical number. Yeah, Brad. Brad, what's what's your take on all this? I think if you listen to independent radio now, you're gonna listen. You're gonna hear more music that sounds like the Velvet Underground than you will the Beatles. I think that's how I see it. I mean, there is. Yeah, I, I think Mackay had a really great outlook on the accessibility factor, but it's it's there's something that seems. I, I don't want to use the word timeless because I I think that's a really broad term, but there's a type of aesthetic on Velvet Underground and Nico that is able to transcend multiple genres, multiple periods, more so than I think other contemporaries at that time could. I mean, a lot of those albums, they're great and they will last forever, but they, they do sound of that time. They're almost like a soundtrack to that point. And I feel with the Velvet Underground, it transcends that a bit. Well, 
now might be a good time to talk about the reason that we have you here. And Bradley, we have, uh, we have chosen two different Velvet Underground albums this season. And as a rule, when we choose two different albums, we do a head-to-head episode where we basically ask our guest to be the decision maker on which album makes our list. Because the, the goal of the podcast is to put together a list with a really strange and demanding caveat, which is that we can only include one album per artist. And so for the Velvet Underground, there are four albums, but for the sake of this podcast, we are looking at their first album and their last album. So let's start with the iconic, the debut album, the maybe the most recognizable album cover of all time. Um, Makai is going to give us a case for the Velvet Underground and Nico making our list. But without tilting your hand too much right now, Brad, can you tell us what you think of this debut album, Velvet Underground and Nico, and what do you think is a a good case to be made for this album being the one to make our list? I mean, I, I don't need you to tilt my, my way in any favor. I, my, my answer is going to be very clear, but to kind of give this conversation a little bit of spontaneity, I thought, I thought it was very interesting that you mentioned there are only four Velvet Underground albums. Uh, there are five, and I know why that fifth one is let off for various reasons, and we could, we could talk about that. But the reason why I mentioned that specifically now is that if we think of Velvet Underground as an art project, and if we do think of it as an art project, I think there is a case to be made that there are five albums. Um, and I'd, ra- and I, and I want to talk about that before I, before I answer the, the answer your question, because um, Doug Ewell, who's the only member of any of those previous albums to make that list. He does appear on the third album, the self-titled album. He does appear on loaded both albums of which do not include John Cale. And by the time we do get to Loaded, you know, how can we, I mean, it could be argued in some cases that we're now transitioning towards Lou Reed's solo project. So if we were to really understand what Velvet Underground is as an entity, I think that informs some of that discussion. Yeah, a continual art project. And so in that way, I think it would be fair to consider Squeeze um, to be a Velvet Underground album, I, I think just historically, because none of the original band members are there, that that is why it it often gets gets left off. But I, but I like that idea that you're bringing to the table. Well, I'm glad you picked up on it because what it segues to is when we talk about Velvet Underground and Nico, I can't consider that an exclusively Velvet Velvet Underground album. I think just referring it to as a Velvet Underground album lends itself to an erasure element of Nico's contributions, um, not only to that album itself, but uh, her contributions to music as well. We have to consider that, yes, colloquially, we do consider this a Velvet Underground album, but it's very key to understand that there is an and Nico part. And so um, within the context of considering the entire oeuvre of what 
um, Velvet Underground is or isn't, I, I think part of that conversation is addressing whether, like, not we can call this a Velvet Underground album. Interesting. Interesting. Well, Micaiah, this is this is your album that, that you that you nominated. And I'd love for you to to, to to kind of give us the case for this album. But I'd love for you to start by by kind of weighing in here on these ideas that, that Bradley just brought up. I mean, that's what's one of the interesting things about Velvet Underground is that they're only, you know, uh, you know, canonically for albums and that, that kind of that history gets written that way, kind of in the CD box set era, you know, they, they released the, I think in 95, the peel slowly box set and um, it's the four albums, right? They don't, they don't include squeeze, you know, and um, the, the clash did the same thing when the clash and the box set era start, you know, re-releasing their music, they leave off, you know, cut the crap. Cause it's the one that doesn't, it only has Joe Strummer, doesn't have everyone else. So, you know, the, even the clash decided, yeah, it's not like a real clash album, you know? So it's, you know, uh, in, in the box set era, I think a lot of artists tried to kind of rewrite their histories. Big star, we say have three albums. They reunited and came out with a couple of albums in the nineties, but we say they have three albums, you know? Uh, you know, so that's, you know, that it's, it's not, um, uncommon necessarily but uh one thing that makes these these four the canonical four but the fifth one is included in this point i'm trying to make also they all have a different lineup you know there's the velvet underground in nico and then the uh white light white heat is just kind of the velvet underground without nico but then the velvet underground self-titled album doesn't even have john kale and loda comes out and mo tucker is pregnant she doesn't even play drums on that record She's credited, but she's not the one playing drums, you know? So like really all of these albums, not just squeeze, all of them have a different lineup. Understanding that all of these albums have like a different lineup, you know, or, or set of members. It's interesting that this one kind of historically has been kind of like the definitive one. Um, and I think a lot of debut albums kind of get this treatment, you know, because it's the first and by virtue of being the first, it's kind of the most groundbreaking because it's the first of its kind and their kind. Um, but um, all that being said, I, I think that this album is uh, pretty exceptional. Um, I mean, I guess the best way to do this is to kind of look at what this record is and what it, what it contains uh, musically, you know, so Sunday morning is this a uh, pretty great pop song that sounds pretty consistent with the time. This is the one that sounds the most rooted in 1967 and 1960s pop music. Um, it sounds very beautiful. Reed sounds great. Nico singing in the background. Uh, it's one that they wrote because uh, the label wanted a single. And so this was them you know here you go here's one more to try to it's the second single that they release um and, it, and, it, and it's a great song um and i think that's you know when people talk about loaded is them like oh that's uh that's velvet underground going like full pop it's like well the first album is full-blown pop with sunday morning 
you know, so I think it's kind of unfair to be, to just say loaded is like, Oh, that's their pop album. It's like this one starts with a huge pop number. Like and it has the most singles that they ever released per, you know, per any record. Uh, but then, you know, um, I'm waiting for the man, I think is one of the great songs in rock and roll history. Um, and this becomes uh, huge for the glam movement. Bowie covers this famously and often. Um, and it's uh, one of their first drug songs. Uh, but it's kind of disguised as a pop song. It almost sounds like a queer pop song. If you're not listening, you know, to like kind of the other kind of uh, insinuations of it, I, I suppose. Uh, but I just think it's great. Just like the, the driving of the guitar and the snare. Like, dun, 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 dun. I just think it, it just really moves really great. And the guitar is crunchy. It's just like, this is where you hear like a new kind of music kind of happening, you know, uh, at least to my ears. Um, and then uh, the Nico songs. Let's just get into the uh, Femme Fatale. Uh, I mean, this is a Stone Cold classic. All Tomorrow's Parties, I'll Be Your Mirror. It's not as like far-fetched and as wild an album as people make it out to be. Um, there, there are definitely some things that you can, you can hear, you know, uh, with other, you know, songs that did chart um, at this time. But I think there's something really great about Nico's voice. I think her voice is, is unconventional, especially for the time. And I think that's kind of that slant. I don't think I could have said it better. I mean, there there's an absolute reason why this this album, in all of its Frankenstein ways that has come into our lives, there's a reason why it's come through. And I, and I think you touched upon that um, very astutely. I be your mirror, reflect what you are. You don't know I be the wind The rain and the sunset The light on your door To show that you're home When you think the night Has in your mind That inside you're twisted And unkind Let me stand to show That you are blind Please put down your hands Cause I see argument to be made so you know again this is not the velvet underground album that i nominated but i i think there are 
three really phenomenal things going for this album. If I was going to make the case for this album, I, I think top of the list is the kind of iconic nature of this album. You know, I think you, you can't get past um, Andy Warhol's role in this. I think, you know, again, I, I think it, it is one of maybe the greatest five album covers of all time. I think there is something great albums also have to have that kind of special extra thing going for them. And I think that's absolutely true on this album. Number two, I'm with, I'm with Brad on this. Like I think Nico's presence on this album in many ways makes this album. If I'm listening to this album, I listen to it as a nine track album. I listen to this at with I'll be your mirror as the final track. I I've reached the point in my life. I have three children at home. Um, I don't have the patience for just noise um, in my life anymore. I, I, I get enough of that at home. So when you get to black angels, death song and European sun, uh, it's, it's just too much for me. It's like the bridge too far. And in John Cale, the, the viola part, the viola in Venus and Furs works for me because it it leads so much into this kind of dark space. But it's not it's it's like the droning um it's the droning note. And so it, again, it's a lot of what you hear today in indie rock music where you get, you know, lots of kind of like droning sounds. There's, there's a ton of music in the nineties. So much of grunge music was kind of doing that same thing with like the, the heavy droning notes. So Venus and furs makes sense to me in that context, but black angels death song is essentially a really great folk song that is in my mind kind of ruined by the like this awful viola, like detuned viola going back and forth over the whole thing. And so for me, when I'm listening to this album, I listen to, I listen to it as nine track album and Nico is the lead vocalist on three of those songs. And she sings with Lou Reed on Sunday morning and so for me, this this really is as much a Nico album as it is a Velvet Underground album. And, and so I think that one of the arguments for that is that including this album would be a way to not just recognize the Velvet Underground, but also recognize Nico, who also in her album that comes out the this year or the following year, Chelsea Girl, like she has another fantastic album that comes out within 12 months of this album coming out. And so I, I think that's, there's a good argument there. And then finally, I do think this is an album that has the benefit of being the first. And so, you know, for better or worse, you know, like kind of like we're saying the first album that a band puts out, in many ways has all of these things going for it. But the primary thing it has going for it is the first album that a band releases is often the album that they've had the most time to work on simply because there's been so much time writing music leading up to the production and release of that album. You know, at least within the history of the Velvet Underground, they don't ever have as much time again to work on an album as they did leading up to this first album. So I have two things in response to that. First, if I were to hear a Black Angel of Death, I think it would be an out-of-tune instrument. 
And the second being that, you know, you're right. When we, t- when we talk about, um, I, I do kind of push back on this idea that the first album is a, you know, more longer time, cohesive, more spent. It, it, I, I will push back on this. And the reason why I do is because you then touch upon a lot of the visual elements of that. How much of this first album thing is Warhol? And is Warhol a member of the Velvet Underground in this case? Is he, you know, much like how you can say that music is another character in a film? You know, what, you know, is Warhol a band member of this at this point in some sort of um, very abstract way? And um, what role does that really play in how this album has come into our lives? I mean, we talked earlier about the iconography, perhaps that the issues you may have with the album stem from that in a tangential way. Loves the sun. Who cares that it makes plants grow? Who cares what it does since you broke my heart? Who loves the wind? Who cares that it makes breezes? Who cares what it does since you broke my Which leads us uh, to talk about my favorite Velvet Underground album and the one that I have nominated, their their final album, Loaded, which is an album title that essentially <laughs> was was a dig at the at the record label. Um, 
essentially what what had happened was uh though their first albums were released on verve uh eventually as as album as labels were getting bought up during the time uh essentially it was a subsidiary of atlantic that released their last album and uh the the joke was that they wanted an album loaded with hits and so loaded became the uh the title of the album and i think kind of overwhelmingly this is their most straightforward kind of pop album it is their most it is their most accessible album and yet despite that when we think of velvet underground albums i i think this is often the one that goes the most overlooked and and i and in probably to the point that you mentioned earlier brad which is that in some ways this kind of functions almost as a lou reed solo album as much as it does a a velvet underground album but i love uh i mean again how how accessible this album is i think that uh, who loves the sun sweet jane rock and roll i mean you start this album off with three of kind of the biggest hits the biggest singles of the velvet underground uh catalog and then of course you end the album with oh sweet nothing um it it is an album full full of hits but it is much a it is as much a yule and reed album as it is a velvet underground album and squeeze ends up sounding a lot like the uh the the songs that are led vocally by yule on this album well squeeze is what happens when you uh you know squeeze the album too hard for hits i know that was a terrible joke i'm sorry there but um no the accessibility is a fantastic point um and the in the concept of this being the album being loaded with hits cowboy junkies had a hit with sweet jane and i can't think of any other velvet underground song that had a that had a cover for a hit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't, I can't either. No, but, but so, so for me, I, I really, I, I think, you know, one of the things, and this is our third season of this podcast, but one of the things that, you know, was really a theme early, you know, by the end of our first season of this podcast is, you know, whether or not you approach what is, what makes a great album, the the album as its whole is it one piece of art in its t- totality or is it a collection of pieces of art um so essentially is 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 the album in its entirety what matters or is it a collection of songs and so for me i i just like the songs unloaded more um than i like the songs on almost every other Velvet Underground album, with the exception of Velvet Underground and Nico, where I think so much of the songs that I love on that album are elevated by Nico's presence. You know, not again, not as not as a Velvet Underground, but the presence of uh, this this outside vocalist. Anyways, all, all of that to say, Loaded is just the one that. I just enjoy listening to. If I'm going to listen to a Velvet Underground album start to finish over and over again, Loaded is the one that is the kind of easiest to get down. It is the it is the least challenging of their of their records, but in some ways the argument against that would be 
So it's kind of not really a velvet underground album. <laughs> like it's, it's not challenging. It's, it's, it's easy to get down. There's, there's nothing that pushes the listener um, in, in the way that any of the other three kind of canonically considered albums do. Um, so that's, that's where I'm at. Brad Mackay, I'd love to hear your thoughts on Loaded and what, what some good arguments for Loaded would be. Well, what I like about the fact that we're even discussing Loaded is that even though the other one is Velvet Underground and, and Nico, is that which album is the best Velvet Underground album isn't as obvious as I think people make it out to be. You know, I think the Velvet Underground and Nico is just kind of like, oh yeah, that's the one. It's the Andy Warhol cover. It's the first one. It's the most groundbreaking one. But like, we can spend an equal amount of time making a case for White Light, White Heat. If we're saying, oh, we need a Velvet Underground album, well, that's the Velvet Underground, right? That's, that's you know, Lou Reed and Kale, uh, you know, really going for it. And there's no Nico, there's no Yule. And it's the most experimental and it has these like kind of great numbers on like, like the, the title track and like, here she comes now, you know, it has the accessibility, but also pushes to the limits what they can do. And John Kell actually like has like some vocal tracks on there. You know, so you can make the case that that is the essential velvet underground album. So somebody could make that case and the self-titled album is like, well, I mean, pale blue eyes is like, it might be the best song they have in their catalog. Um, and there are a number of just like incredible songs on that record. So, and, and, and I think that one sounds the most like contemporary indie rock music. So you could, you know, you probably wouldn't be a stretch to make the case that it might be the most long lasting influential one sonically. So you can make that case. And I think if you want to, you could make the case for loaded. And I think that case would be that it does have, just these like massive, you know, pop songs that are so lovable. I, you know, people think that's a strike against it. It's, it's greatest strength is these great songs. Um, so I, I think loaded is a great record. And I, and I don't think that because it has great accessible pop songs, I don't think that's a strike against it. That's very apt. And you loaded is a fantastic album and you, and discounting squeeze if we consider the main four albums, they certainly went out on top and to deliver a high quality album, actually high quality albums four in a row is a considerable, is a considerable thing because there's a considerable triumph in being able to deliver a great debut album and a great final album as well. And a lot of bands don't get that opportunity. I mean, cream was a band that had three solid albums in a row and then their final you know, hey, we're gone. It's you know, it's 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 nothing, and it does stand on its own as being a very stellar album for completely different reasons than than Velvet Underground and Nico. Standing on the corner, suitcase in my hand, Jackson's corset, Jane is in her vest. And me, I'm in a rock and roll band. Huh. Riding a studs back at Jim. You know, those were different times. All, all the poets, they studied rules of verse. And those ladies, they rolled their eyes. Sweet Jane. 
from the jack is a banker And Jane, she is a clerk And both of them save their monies And when, when they come home from work Soldiers, all your protest kids, you can hear Jack say, Get in here. Some evil mothers Well they're gonna tell you that Everything is just dirt You know that women Never really faint And that villains always Blink their eyes Ooh. And that you know Children are the only ones Who blush And that life is just to die into what will be ultimately the deciding factor for which of the albums ultimately makes our list. And so Bradley, we're going to, we're going to now each take turns doing our ranking of we'll, we'll go ahead and originally we were going to do the four velvet underground albums, but let's make it the five. Let's throw a squeeze in the list. I have no problem with that. Um, and, and let's rank these, these albums and Makaya will start with you and, and then I'll go. And then Bradley, we're going to end with you and ultimately, uh, how you rank them will ultimately be the deciding factor for which of these albums, makes our list. So Micaiah, let's start with you and you can explain uh, your listing as much or as little as you'd like. Um, and, and we'll ultimately leave it for Brad at the end to, to make the decision for us. Sure. I mean, number five is just going to be squeeze. I mean, glad that there, you know, it has its defenders, but uh, it's number five for me. Uh, number four. Now this is new for me because I've had this album at number one. Uh, for years, but uh, right now it's number four. 
but that's just how good all of these records are. Is uh, so number four for me is White Light, White Heat. Even though at times in my life I've had as my number one favorite Velvet Underground record. Um, but yeah, just as of recently, I'm just it's uh, you know my my interests lie elsewhere. Um, the number three would be Loaded, and it is because of those great big pop songs and these kind of you know it's just it's just a good time. It's a good hang. It rules, you know, and there's nothing to be ashamed about for enjoying it. Um, and then number two would be the Velvet Underground, the 1969 record, which um, I've had at number four, as low as number four. But recently, that's that's the one that I've been the most excited to to re-listen to, and um, the one that I've been spending want, wanting to spend more time with. Um, yeah, so I think that record's great. Um, that's my number two, and then number one would be the album that I nominated uh, for our list, which is Velvet Underground and Nico. Which, um, you know, every time I listen to that record, uh, in, in just like in the corniest way, I say to myself sometimes out loud, involuntarily, I just go, "This is the real deal," and that's just kind of how I feel about the Velvet Underground. It's like, man, this is the real deal. Like, this is. Yeah, this this is what it's about right here. Like this is this is rock and roll music. Like this is this is the real deal. You know, and that that's kind of how I I feel about them, um, as, and especially about that record every time I listen to it. So, mm. that's my list. Yeah, so I, I'm I'm with you in the bottom two, and 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 here's what I will say. Um, I'm going to put squeeze at five, but there is not as much distance for me between squeeze and my fourth, which is white light, white heat. There's not as much distance between those two as you might think. Um, it, in fact, I, I would say that if, if, if squeeze had been remixed, if, if, if it had gotten the treatment that a lot of these albums have gotten in their like, you know, 30 and 45 year anniversary, whether you get the remastered version of it, I think if you remixed squeeze, it could challenge white light, white heat for me. Um, and, and, and that probably says more about how I devalue white light, white heat than how I value squeeze. Um, it, but for me, White Light, White Heat is is just one of those albums that, um, again, I I understand, I understand it's John Cale and Lou Reed together, and I understand it's the most experimental, and it's them really going for it. But it's, um, with with the exception of of you know maybe one track on that album, it it really feels like a swing and a miss. Um, but what I see is the top three. Um, man, all three of these are fantastic. Uh, and, and I could go on and on about, and for, for me, any of these threes could have realistically made the list. Uh, the Velvet Underground self-titled, um, you get Pale Blue Eyes, What Goes On, I'm Set Free, uh, After Hours. Uh, you know, again, you get a great Mochucker song. Like, it's, it's just a great album. And it's one that, um, that, that I'm appreciating more and more. Number two for me is Velvet Underground and Nico. Um, 
And again, I, I, I think if Velvet Underground and Nico was a nine track album, it would, it would be higher on my list. Um, the end, the end of the album is just so challenging to get through. Um, and to end an album that way for me leaves such a bad taste in your mouth, um, especially because I, I often listen to records in my office. And so I like the idea of a record that I can just keep flipping back and forth and just, you know, keep listening to start to finish over and over again. But the way Velvet Underground and Nico ends is, is for me the hardest part of it. It would be, it would be the only detractor that takes it from being number one for me. And so my number one is loaded. And again, because it has that, it, it has that listenability to it. I, I feel like I can go start to finish, flip it over and start all over again. And nothing is challenging to get through. I enjoy all of it. Um, there's some really big, big songs on it. And so loaded is, is my number one. And Bradley, that leads us to you. How do you rank these five albums? Well, considering that my album rankings match Micaiah's, I'm going to save time and, and listing them all out because I want to talk about um, that, that Nico element. I think there's something that she brings into the equation that tends to bring out specific talents and specific aesthetics of the Velvet Underground portion in a way that I can, in a way that if I were to create a parallel here, that Meg White would bring out certain qualities of Jack White that would make that their work as the White Stripes much stronger than anything that he's doing solo or dead weather wise, you know, or, or certainly if we think about, you know, other artistic partnerships, Martin Scorsese and his editor, Thelma Schoonmaker. Can you imagine what a Scorsese film would be like without her? I think there's a considerable contribution that she brings out, not only just for herself, but her presence brings an element and an energy that takes this album to the absolute next level for me. I'm, I'm okay. And, and not only am I okay, I think this is the right choice. I think if you're only going to have one Velvet Underground album, I, I think it's impossible for it not to be Velvet Underground and Nico. I think it's impossible for it not to be this album. I love that we got the chance to talk about Loaded because, again, I, I think that it is an unfortunately overlooked album in their discography in, in one that is, for me, the most enjoyable of, of their albums. Um, but I, I think this I, I think this kind of is the right pick. Um, and, and Bradley, I'm glad you made it.
Every single guest who comes on the podcast, because this is a podcast about music, about albums and list making, we want to give you an opportunity, Bradley, since you are a guest, to give us your top five. And that top five can be anything you want. It can be your top five favorite albums of all time, what you think are the top five greatest. It can be, um, you know, top five albums that you want to listen to in the shower. I mean, what, whatever it is that you want to give us a list for, what are your top five albums? I decided to put together a top five list of what's been in heavy rotation for me for the last month, um, because they're all very different, um, and represent different things that's happening. Um, the first would be the 1988 album by Frank Zappa, Broadway the Hard Way. If you're if you're unfamiliar with this album, it's basically his album addressing the 1988 election. There is a lot of interesting songs that bring to his um, that bring up his voting advocacy. He challenges a lot of. Republican and conservative figures on that album. He even does challenge Democrats as well. There's a whole song dedicated to Jesse Jackson called Rhyming Man. That's been on heavy rotation for me for a project that I cannot discuss at this point. Um, but it is, it is in fairness, it might be the album that has the only song written about Michael Dukakis. Yes, yes. And Sting, you know, on the CD version, Sting's on there too. <laughs> Uh, they they do a fantastic version of uh, Murder by Numbers, which is which is incredible. Um, next, uh, Zappa, we probably yeah. should have mentioned that like the Mothers of Invention were also on Verve and were label mates of the Velvet Underground, and and their album Freak Out actually came out in '66, predating Velvet Underground and Nico DLP. So you know, uh, people that people kind of forget that that there there was other weird stuff happening before that LP came out like with Freak Out, which was just a, a wild double LP uh, and, and, and a great album. So, yeah. 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 So, so, so you, you're giving us number five, a, a Frank Zappa album from 1988. I love it. What's next on the rotation? Next is the 1995 album by David Bowie, Outside, or it's longer, more complicated title, like One Outside, the Diaries of Nathan Adler, a hypercycle, something like that. It's it's a concept album. There, you know, Rolling Stone just put out a list of the best ever concept albums, and Ziggy Stardust did make it. They neglected to put Joe's Garage, which I fault them for. But when we think of Bowie concept albums, Outside is fantastic. It is a 
it's a murder mystery that is set in a cyberpunk world that blends in the labyrinthian myth of the minotaur and it's got some you know besides the whole concept but it has some really brilliant songs um it had uh some singles on it including um hello space boy which references um canonically captain tom the closing album uh closing track on that album is one of my favorite bowie songs strangers when we meet which is absolutely beautiful and i think it also um represents one of Bowie's unsung talents of being a very great backing vocal presence. Um, throughout his, throughout his, throughout his discography, he has his own backing vocals in a way that kind of overshadows the lead vocals. And he also appears in backing vocals in a lot of places. Uh, Transformer was just mentioned. He, his backing vocal on Satellite Love is just completely stellar. It's a fan. It's a fantastic underrated album. The next album on my list is a soundtrack. So um, I'm actually directing a music-themed film festival happening later this year, and um, of music-themed films, one of the one of the possible genres we were looking at was soundtrack films. So I was going back and and really just kind of reviewing some of my favorite soundtracks. And the Jackie Brown soundtrack is absolutely stunning. Um, it, it is stunning on so many levels. The cover of the Brothers Johnson cover of Strawberry Letter Number Twenty Three, in that film, um, Samuel Jackson, as he's listening to his car before he murders Chris Tucker. Spoiler alert for this twenty-six-year-old film. Um, that's one of the most frightening scenes I've ever seen. I just it, it scares me every time I see it. And um, you also have the cover of Street Life, um, which was the cover of the Crusader song from the uh, film Sharky's Machine. Nobody leans on Sharky's machine. Um, so this is a soundtrack that really stands out for me. It will not be included in our festival, but it is one that I really uphold dearly and has been in heavy rotation for me for, uh, for a while. All right, so you got two left, Brad. Next up would be Fragments, which is the 16th installment of Bob Dylan's bootleg series um, that chronicles the recording sessions of Time Out of Mind. Uh, from 1996 to 1997. I love that album. I'm a very big Dylan fan. I do love Time Out of Mind, one of, though I think my probably my favorite Dylan album is actually Infidels from 83. But I this has been a heavy rotation for me for a lot of reasons. I recently interviewed uh, Stephen Hyden, uh, who wrote the line. I interviewed him about his Pearl Jam book, but he wrote the liner notes for this bootleg series set. And... The mix, they, they, a part of the set, they have a 2022 updated mix of, um, of Time Out of Mind that takes out the, the Lanois swampiness, which is very characteristic of the album and is great. But listening to this 2022 mix after reading Dylan's Philosophy of Modern Song really had me appreciate the songs more as songs beyond the production element. And um, for someone who's been listening to, for, to Dylan for over 20 years and knew Time Out of Mind very well, it was like listening to the album for the first time. Yeah, that, that's, that's a great box set. And the, the liner notes that you're referring to are, are really great, too. I love the way that he approaches Bill, uh, Bob Dylan and talking about how Dylan you know, doesn't belong to like the boomer generation, that he belongs to everybody, and that younger generations grow up with the whole catalog 
they take the good with the bad. They're not like, oh yeah, well he, you know, he dips off here. It's just like, no, you know, yeah, it was very interesting stuff. And that's, that's cool that you got to talk to him. That, that, that's like a, he's like a dream guest for the podcast too. Yes. Yeah. He's great. And then my final album, it's a bit of a controversial pick, but it's, it's on here because it is a recent release, even more recent than fragments, but it would be the uh, songs of surrender of, uh, album of reimaginings of that you two did um i um i know i wrote a book on joshua tree so obviously i'm going to um you've got the vinyl right there great and um so obviously i'm going to buy this album i'm going to listen to it and i listened to it a couple times it's been in heavy rotation because it's it's been out for less than a month but what is kind of interesting about this album the only thing i'll really say about its quality is it's introduced a lot of debate and discussion about the concept of reimagining your work. And there's been a lot of people that have been hard on YouTube about it. And I, I say this not as a fan or as someone who's written about the band, but I just, I say this as objectively as I possibly can. I think there's a lot of projections in that and a lot of biases that get filtered through that. Because when we think about other people who have re-recorded their music, it seems like that a lot of music writers and a lot of music critics will take that narrative to kind of inform how they approach this, this album. I mean, Taylor Swift had re-recorded a, a vast majority of her back catalog, catalog to great critical acclaim. And the reason being to regain ownership for it. And that's an incredible move. And I champion that for, for anybody, especially a woman in music, but Beyond that, whenever you go see a concert, there's not really a lot of complaints about artists who reinvent their songs in a live setting. And I just kind of, to those music writers and music critics say, if you have no issue with reimagining your music for to escape contractual obligations or reimagining your music in a live setting to create a new kind of connection with the audience, why exactly this album is this a problem for you is it is it the iphone thing i i don't know but the only thing i will really fault about this release they put about a dozen different color variants of vinyl which create created a very massive bottleneck in vinyl production for uh, a lot of smaller independent labels record stores are having a difficulty getting those albums because they have to be delayed in their production. So I'll fault U2's management team for that. But as far as the aesthetic direction of going and re-examining your songs, I, you know, I think, I think it's, it may not be everybody's cup of tea. There's, there's certainly some misses there for me, but I think a lot of what music writers and music critics are saying, I think completely misses the point. Brad, it's been such a treat to have you with us. For our listeners, your book, U2's Joshua Tree, Planting Roots in Mythic America, um, a phenomenal book. It is available everywhere books are sold, but of course we want to encourage our listeners to pick that up at their local independent book retailer. Tell our listeners a little bit about this book uh, before they go pick it up. So this was an album that U2 had wanted to convey a lot of sounds and aesthetic and literature that they were learning about America when they were touring in the mid eighties, when they got bigger after live aid, they wanted to work on an album that conveyed a lot of those ideas. And initially it was supposed to be 
a disc of very Americana roots album uh, oriented music and then a disc that recalls their um, European post-punk aesthetic. But they found that they they were more in tune with the Americana element because by leaving Ireland and exploring the U.S. and their vision of America and what that represented for them, it started to reveal facets of their own identity. Specifically, The Edge has said that they didn't really discover what it really meant to be Irish until they went to America. And when we think about this dichotomy between the promised land and the reality, the promised land idea is that, you know, the institutional framework of the United States being that all men are created equal. And any, and any general person knows that that's not necessarily true. And not only did we have the, you know, slavery, Jim Crow and the, and the civil rights movement that was that for all of its peaceful intentions did have a lot of violence in it. There still extends a lot of systemic and institutional racism that presents a lot of vast inequality. And for a lot of people, this becomes a means of saying, well, America was never great to begin with. So, you know, it never can be great for these reasons. And um, that's the reality element. And what I, what I really wanted to convey in this book was not only an acknowledgement of that dichotomy, but really pushed for this idea that, we can be the change that we want to see and that we all have an inherent responsibility in that. Now, this was my effort to not only translate the messaging of this album, but convey deeper ideas that I felt could help us transcend the very dark moment that we're in as a country. Uh, I firmly believe that things will get better. They will get worse before they get better, but they will get better. That's great. Well, Bradley, we, again, listener, want to encourage you to pick up this book, the, the MacGuffin of which is U2's Joshua Tree, um, but but a book that ends up being about so much more than that. I uh, want to encourage you to pick that up today. Bradley, it's been such a treat to have you with us. Thank you so much uh, for being with us tonight. Thank you so much for having me. It was wonderful to be a guest in your home, essentially, and I really appreciate your time for this. Jenny said when she was just five years old, there was nothing happening at all. Every time she puts on a radio, there was nothing going down at all. Not at all. You know she don't believe what she heard at all She started shaking to that fine, fine music You know her life was saved by rock and roll Despite all the amputations You know you could just go out and dance to the rock So, Rob, how do you feel about the outcome? Uh, you had nominated Loaded, and uh, it seems that Valdemar uh, Garnico won out. Uh, did you expect that going in, or you know, how, how are you feeling? 
Yeah. I mean, I completely expected and, and I'm, and I'm okay with that. Um, in, in many ways, I, I love just the opportunity to spend some time, all of us talking about loaded and, and talking about the great songs, um, the great pop songs that are on that album. And, um, you know, if, if for no other reason than we were able to expose some of our listeners to some of those great songs on an often overlooked Velvet Underground album, um, man, I'm, I'm grateful. But, but yeah, Velvet Underground and Nico, it's an iconic album. And for as great as the songs Unloaded are, it is not an iconic album. Velvet Underground and Nico might be one of the most iconic albums of all time. And so uh, it, it went exactly how I was thinking it was going to. And I have no qualms with that. By the end of this season, we'll have our top 75. Yeah. Um, where in that 75 do you think this record will place? I, I think probably the 45 to 55 range. Interesting. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I want to say top. 25 I, I don't know i i think that not not with the albums we already have on because because here's the thing i there there's because of the way we rank at the end of each season mm-hmm. um th- i could see this ranking pretty highly among the best albums of all time mm-hmm. but it's not a top 50 favorite album for me gotcha. and, and so that's that's where i think it would would suffer some and and look admittedly even though this is the highest ranking velvet underground album on every iteration of the rolling stone list it has also fallen in every iteration of the rolling stone list still still top 25 but it 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 has it has progressively dropped you know if you think about some of the other albums that we have done this season that are finally making the podcast look i i think i think d'angelo's voodoo is a better album than 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 Velvet Underground and Nico. So, you know, I, I think there are other albums that we have done this season, even though it's our third season, that have a better chance of making our top 25 than this one. Yeah, I mean, we'll see. I'll be interested to know where it lands in the final list, but uh, this is a no-brainer one. One that probably should have been on the list earlier. Yeah. Well, listener, what do you think? Did we get this right? Are you one of the people like me who really enjoys Loaded among the Velvet Underground albums? Are you someone who is flabbergasted that we didn't talk about White Light, White Heat or the self-titled album? Let us know. Reach out to us on Instagram at You Forgot One, on Twitter at You Forgot One Pod. Of course, our website is YouForgotOne.com. And Micaiah, for everyone who's listening to this podcast on whatever platform they are listening what should they do well of course if you haven't already um you should leave us a five-star review um one we like it too it helps other people find the show um and if you want to do one better you could even write a review Uh, that that certainly would make us happy and if you haven't of course you should like follow subscribe whichever your podcast provider tells you to do so that as we're dropping new episodes right they're ready to go for you once they're released well listener we've let you listen to a lot of velvet underground and you've heard us talk about a lot of velvet underground i want to leave you now with unquestionably what is the best velvet underground closing track oh sweet nothing from loaded
应该。